0: Welcome to the Bagwell Center podcast. This podcast features lectures and symposia hosted by the Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity at Kennesaw State University. The Bagwell Center's mission is to provide a platform for an interdisciplinary study of the importance of markets and economic institutions in regards to resource allocation, entrepreneurial activity, economic prosperity, and improved human welfare. Through extracurricular outreach activities such as guest lectures, film screenings, workshops, fellowships, and reading groups, the Bagwell Center places an emphasis on educating students about the foundations of market institutions and examining the related impact of government policy in a mixed economy. For more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit coles.kennesaw.edu slash econop.
1: Hello I'm Michael Petrono, a senior lecturer in economics here at Kennesaw State University and a Bagwell Center affiliated faculty member. And we're here today as part of the Bagwell Center's podcast um, that we're starting and interviewing um, Bert Folsom. Uh, Dr Folsom is a, a PhD in economic history from the University of Pittsburgh and he's the author of 10 books and editor of an 11th book. He has served as a professor of history at Murray State University, uh, Hillsdale College, and more recently, he is an adjunct professor here at Kennesaw State University through the support of the Bagwell Center. And Dr. Folsom is known as an authority on U.S. tax policy and presidential history. He speaks at conferences across the United States and is a frequent guest on national television and radio. And we're very happy to have uh, Dr. Folsom with us today. Welcome, Bert. Good to be with you, Mike. Now, um, Dr. Folsom has agreed to talk about uh, a book that he's written called The Myth of the Robber Barons. And I found the book uh, personally very, very satisfying and fascinating because the robber barons are a section of just about every child's growing up's history class where we talk about the United States making the transition from being an agricultural society to an industrial society. And there's these group of people called robber barons. And as uh, from the title of the book, The Myth of the Robber Barons, suggests that maybe what we learned in school isn't quite the whole story. Bert, in a few words, can you kind of sum up what the um, theme of your book is? Right. Uh, during the late
2: 1800s, a period we sometimes call the Gilded Age, the United States rose from being a second-rate power to being a world economic power. It is during that time period that great entrepreneurs came into being to create the society that uh, um, made the United States a dominant nation. Uh, I would call them great entrepreneurs, but many critics call them robber barons, hence the title, the myth of the robber barons.
1: What is normally meant by robber baron? I think I can kind of figure it out from the words in the title, but can you give us a follow, uh, what's a a good definition of a robber baron?
2: A robber baron, a good definition would be someone who becomes successful through some kind of illegitimate means and achieves his success illegitimately. Uh, or at least in some way contrary to conventional ethics. And so the robber barons are seen as people who somehow manipulated the markets or manipulated the political process to achieve their
1: ends. Uh, but many people are describing uh, Google and Facebook in those same kind of terms today Uh, That they're somehow getting ahead uh, through some kind of illegitimate means, but sticking closer to this historical uh, time period in the late 1800s, I'd like to go ahead and start talking about Elias Vanderbilt. Now, the when I growing up, I remember the only thing I knew about the Vanderbilts was one that one of his sons built the Biltmore House in North Carolina. That's pretty famous. And also uh, Gloria Vanderbilt had a line of jeans that she uh, manufactured. (laughs) And that's about what I would know about the Vanderbilts. I presume that the original Vanderbilt was famous for much more than that. Can you talk a little bit about Cornelius Vanderbilt? Right, he's the one who made the family fortune. He was a person who grew up in very modest circumstances,
2: but he had ideas of how to compete effectively in steamships and railroads. He wanted to add value to people's lives by giving them low prices and competitive services. Uh, It might be good here to distinguish, Mike, between the political entrepreneurs and the market entrepreneurs, because the conventional robber barons that I was describing earlier fit what I call political entrepreneurs, that is, people who tried to succeed through manipulating the price or by some kind of government subsidy and achieve success that way, whereas market entrepreneurs try to add value to people's lives by producing a high-quality product at a reasonable price or a competitive price. And that's what Vanderbilt was. We do have political entrepreneurs on the scene in the Gilded Age, but we also have market entrepreneurs. And Vanderbilt is uh, the first chapter in the book. And he is a classic example of a market entrepreneur because of his work in steamships and railroads by providing good service and low cost to the customer and giving them a good product.
1: Now, I seem to remember from my history class that um, Cornelius Vanderbilt did not invent the steamship. So uh, who actually did invent the steamship and how does Cornelius Vanderbilt get involved in, in this industry?
2: Uh, actually, the United States was involved in the beginning of the steam, what they called steamboats, smaller versions of steamships. And Robert Fulton was the inventor of the steamship and uh, steamboat. He was a political entrepreneur in that he was receiving, a, in effect, a subsidy from the state of New York to produce a steamboat. But to his credit, he did produce it. But it was not a. Competitive product in the sense that people were able to use his steamboats at a, at a cheaper price than those that were produced later by competitors. But he was the inventor in the early 1800s of the steamboat, and Vanderbilt was really part of the next generation that came along in the 1840s to go across the ocean with steamboats. Uh, in the case of Robert Fulton, he went up and down the Hudson River in New York. In the case of Vanderbilt, he was going from New York to uh, Liverpool, England.
1: Now, in the early years, did Robert Fulton have some kind of government support beyond a subsidy? Did he have a monopoly right to be the only supplier of the ferry service? You're right. That's exactly what he
2: had. New York had given him a 30-year franchise. He, he had if, if he could invent it, essentially the deal was this. If Robert Fulton could invent a steamboat, New York would give him monopoly rights to operate that steamboat for many years. So that Fulton, uh, when he invented the steamboat, could prevent competition. You had to have his permission to be sailing steamboats in the state of New York. And so he would franchise other people to operate steamboats in different parts of New York. But he was the man who was in charge of the operation. And if you, if you uh, wanted to operate a, steam, a steamboat
1: legally, you had to go through Robert Fulton. So how did Cornelius Vanderbilt get into the steamboat business then? Well, the
2: monopoly was broken up. And actually, Vanderbilt had something to do with that. Because the, the, the challenge was this. You had people who wanted to, do, to operate steamboats from New Jersey to New York. And so the question is, is the monopoly that, that exists in New York, does that apply to steam, steamboats running from New Jersey to New York, or is it just in New York? Thomas Gibbons, who was a steamboat operator, was in New Jersey, and he operated a service from New Jersey to New York City. Vanderbilt was his captain. Vanderbilt operated as a young man, operated those steamboats. And so uh, uh, Fulton had him, uh, and the the New York police, had Vanderbilt arrested, or at least they tried to have him arrested, uh, because he was uh, in New York where the steamboat monopoly existed. Vanderbilt and Gibbons argued that it was interstate trade and that only Congress has the right to operate... uh, only Congress has the right to regulate interstate trade. And that New York, although the state of New York could give Fulton a monopoly, it had no power for anybody who wanted to operate a steamboat outside of New York and come into New York. And so that was a major Supreme Court decision, Gibbons versus Ogden. And that decision, uh, Chief Justice Marshall and uh, the rest of the Supreme Court went along with Gibbons and Vanderbilt and decided that Fulton had no control outside the state of New York. He eventually folded in his monopoly, sold out, and we had free trade in steamboats in the United States in the early 1800s. It was from there that people began to build bigger steamboats, what we we're gonna call steam ships, and go from New York all the way across the Atlantic Ocean to England or other areas in Europe.
1: Now, one of the things I never really understood from the title of being a robber baron, one gets the impression you're getting rich by taking something from someone. Now, with Cornelius Vanderbilt, he's entering into competition against a monopolist. The monopoly is eventually legally dismantled, and he's, con- he's permitted to operate does Vanderbilt at that point now raise his prices in order to get rich? How did um, v- Vanderbilt get rich? Uh, you, you're
2: making a good point. Uh, in, as a matter of fact, Vanderbilt did not raise his prices when he was operating steamboats in New York in the New York area because he knew that competition would come along and cut the prices. Competition and incentives are key elements in economic life and in the operation of markets. And Vanderbilt, under, even though he was not educated uh, in a formal sense, he understood intuitively human nature and how markets work and realized that the best way to succeed, the way that would be the happiest for everybody involved, would be, for, at least for customers, would be for him to give them the customers low rates and to provide a good service. And so, rather than try to gouge customers and try to capture markets through monopoly or some uh, some way of eliminating eliminating competition, Vanderbilt wanted to produce a superior product at a competitive price, and that's why I call him a market entrepreneur, not a political entrepreneur,
1: which would be which we would classify Robert Fulton. When um, um, Cornelius Vanderbilt decided to get out to branch out of just doing steamboats in uh, in the New York area and go transatlantic, as you pointed out earlier, uh, did he um, have a, a bunch of competitors to deal with on the um, of the high seas?
2: Well, he certainly he certainly did. In fact, it, uh, the problem of government intervention, which was present with steamboats. Popped up with steam ships. You know, steam ships are major modes of transportation. I, th- I think most people today overlook the importance of the invention of the steamboat and the steamship because it took three months to go across the Atlantic Ocean. In other words, to go from the United States to England would take about. It might be two and a half months, but it could take three months and steam power through sailing. It took Columbus about two to three months. When you get a steam ship going instead of a steam, instead of a sailing boat, you have the power to go through the ocean and you can cut that time from two to three months to two weeks. And so you just just have to think about how that's going to impact the cost of goods. If you can go from instead of two or three months, go down to two weeks or less than two weeks to get across the ocean. You can get passengers there cheaply. Think of of how that lowers passenger costs. You don't have to be on the seas for three months eating and uh, uh, using up value. You can instead be there in just two weeks. And so the fares are going to be much less. You can get places quicker. You can get goods from Europe to the United States in in just two weeks. So uh, what this has the effect of doing is really reducing costs and Increasing immigration to the United States because now it becomes cheaper for people to come over here and so it, it really tr- in many ways transforms the world and it, Perhaps the idea that people had was that government would be able to facilitate this both with steamboats and steam ships because Edward Collins was the successor to Fulton as a political entrepreneur. He received a subsidy from the federal government to transport people and merchandise from England to the United States and the United States to England. The United States government in the late 1840s gave him a federal subsidy starting with $385,000 a year, which was A considerable amount for the 1840s. Our whole national debt was only a couple million dollars. So when you're paying $385,000 a year to someone to deliver the mail, to deliver people, to deliver merchandise from New York to England, that's a substantial amount of money. Vanderbilt entered the market because Collins kept getting increased subsidies every year. The United States government increased Collins' subsidies. He kept pleading, oh, I need more to do my service. I need more. And so uh, the United States Congress gave him more, and finally Vanderbilt got in with no subsidy. Vanderbilt, with no subsidy, became a competitor of Edward Collins, who had a large federal subsidy. Vanderbilt won the competition and provided low rates, lower rates than Collins, with no federal subsidy, thus exposing the whole problem
1: of federally funded industry. Why was he able to um, compete against someone who was receiving a subsidy? It sounds to me like that would make it impossible to compete. I, I think a lot of people find that remarkable. Mike, I mean,
2: that's a very good question because, see, you're sitting there saying, wait a minute, Collins, his subsidy at one point increased to almost a million dollars a year. And so Vanderbilt is receiving no federal subsidy. And so how can Vanderbilt with no federal subsidy send passengers overseas at lower rates than Collins? And the answer is that, again, it's some of the laws of economics. Vanderbilt realized the function of econo- what, what economists call economies of scale. In other words, Vanderbilt looked at it this way. The, the, the costs of operating a steamboat or steamship overseas are what economists would call them fixed costs. In other words, whether you had five passengers or whether you had a 1,000 passengers, your costs of moving through the water on that steamship are roughly the same. And so, because your costs are fixed and roughly the same, Vanderbilt said, wait a minute, I don't need to be concerned so much with higher rates to charge passengers. I just need to make sure I I get a lot of passengers at some rate. And then, if I get a lot of passengers, I ultimately will be able to make money. Whereas Collins was concerned with getting the subsidy and surviving because of his federal subsidy, he wasn't thinking of customers in quite the same way. He was thinking of appealing to the government to get money to operate a steamship. Vanderbilt is thinking of the customers. How can I get large numbers of customers overseas and apply the concept of economies of scale to make money? So whereas Collins would charge maybe he started wanted to charge two hundred dollars a passenger, he cut it down a little bit. But Vanderbilt invented what would what we would call today the third class fare. He just piled people together in the in the lower end of the boat, and I'm not saying that this was a luxury. Voyage that these customers were getting but I'm saying for $35 as opposed to 100 or 125 that Collins was charging You could get on a Vanderbilt ship and if you didn't mind being next to a whole lot of people for 10 days And I mean, I'm you know people would people would snore, you know, babies would cry It's not going to be necessarily a great 10 days But if you could do that you could come over to the United States for $35 and so Vanderbilt would have 600 or so passengers on his ship. Collins might only have hundred. And so Vanderbilt would make a little bit off each, each passenger. And Vanderbilt also was in the food selling business. And so Vanderbilt would make money selling food as well. He made enough to earn profits right from the start with his enterprise.
1: He's also, um, Vanderbilt himself is also pretty famous for railroading. Um, How did he make the conversion from being a steamship um, owner to being a railroad entrepreneur?
2: Right. He made the transition really during the time of the Civil War and uh, afterwards. Uh, Steamships, he did well, and he defeated Collins. Eventually, the federal government was so embarrassed over the subsidies they gave to Collins, especially when Collins wrecked a couple of, ships, of the ships. And the Congress even built him another ship after he, he one of his ships sunk. Vanderbilt never had a, one of his ships sink. And so uh, eventually Congress stopped the subsidy to Collins. The British were also competing, so prices were good for customers. But after the Civil War, Vanderbilt believed the future in investment was in railroads. And so his idea that it was that he could take customers from the East, maybe New York City, transport them to the Midwest and and to the West. Also, he could transport lumber, he could transport all sorts of merchandise back and forth from the American West to the East. So Vanderbilt got into railroads and ended up buying and operating the New York Central Railroad, which became one of the largest and most prosperous railroads in the United States.
1: In all of these examples, starting with the steamboats on the Hudson River, then the trans-oceanic um, steam ships, and then with railroads, in every one of those examples, when Vanderbilt got into the industry and the entire time was in the industry, what was happening to prices for customers, going up or down?
2: Going down. And see, this is very important because it's often not understood. The competition and the quality of merchandise was, was – the quality of the products were going uh, up. The quality of the products going up, the prices going down. So that uh, it, it was a it was a big break for customers. And the more that prices went down, the more incentives that other entrepreneurs had to 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 uh, uh, to come in and compete. And so we ended up in the United States having a variety of entrepreneurs and railroads going all across in all different routes across the United States. And the United States became a major steel producer and a ma- major uh, spe- specifically with what the product of steel, a, a railroad producing country.
1: Now, again, um, I'm a bit hazy on my history, but I'm, tra- I'm trying to remember um, what it was like back in my college days. Remember, we uh, studied something about the transcontinental railroad and driving of a famous golden spike at Promontory Point and all that. Uh, Can you give us a little bit of background on the transcontinental railroads?
2: Yes, that uh, Mike, that's good. Uh, the The chapter right that I do right after the Vanderbilt chapter is on James J. Hill, and he was a builder of a transcontinental railroad, but not the first builder. The first builder builders, again, were subsidized by the federal government. In both the Vanderbilt story and in the transcontinental railroad story, we have situations where two major industries, steamships and railroads, both had a federal funding to it that started it. And in both cases, the federal funding was a disaster. It was expensive to the taxpayers. And in both cases, we had entrepreneurs emerge Who took no federal funds, who outcompeted and outproduced the subsidized entrepreneurs, the subsidized what I call political entrepreneurs. And the story of the Transcontinental starts with the Union Pacific Railroad and the Central Pacific Railroad and They were paid, Uh, President Lincoln was supportive of this, others were as well. They simply couldn't imagine that a private entrepreneur might be able to go across the country. They believed it would take federal funding to do it, and so we funded two railroads, the Central Pacific to go from California eastward to Nebraska, and the Union Pacific Railroad to go from Omaha, Nebraska westward and connect with the Central Pacific and that would be our first transcontinental railroad. Often textbooks portray this as being a wonderful event. Some historians argue that it was important to have, I mean, without the federal funding, it never could have happened. But it, we have to look at a couple of things. First of all, the railroad was a disaster. It never was well built. And second, we have James J. Hill come along and build a much better railroad without any federal aid. Let's look at incentives for a minute and how that dictated the failure of the Union Pacific. The Union Pacific Railroad was paying the builder, the the government was paying the Union Pacific by the mile. So for every mile, they received a certain amount of money depending on whether the land was hilly or flat. And so the Union Pacific discovered that it was very profitable to build on flat land through Nebraska. So instead of going through Nebraska straight to Colorado, they took a curved route to get more miles. In other words, the incentive was to capture as many miles as they could, not to build the best railroad that they could. Ultimately, ultimately when that railroad failed and ran into debt and ran into bankruptcy, James J. Hill decided to try to do the a transcontinental railroad without any federal aid. And so he built what was what we know as the Great Northern Railroad. And he built that from St. Paul, Minnesota, westward out to Seattle, Washington. And he did that with no federal funds. And in doing that, he would make the exports of the different Western regions profitable, whether it was wheat in North Dakota, or it could be cattle or whether it was copper in Montana, whether it was lumber out in Washington, uh, regardless, he would try to make those exports profitable. He would give customers discounts to come out to settle in the land, and then he would transport what they grew and what they produced eastward. And James J. Hill had the only transcontinental that never went bankrupt. The others either went bankrupt or they were in some way horribly corrupted. And so the best transcontinental railroad in the country was the one that received no federal funds, James J.
1: Hill, the Great Northern Railroad. Now, did um, uh, James Hill make his fortune off of charging higher prices than the subsidized lines? Where did his money come from?
2: No, he did the same thing. He was also competitive. And see, he could charge lower prices because his railroads were better built. He didn't have a curvaceous route going all the way through to the West Coast. The other thing is that the Union Pacific did not do well going uh, by the Rocky Mountains. Getting through a mountainous area is horrible for railroads because you want to build on as flat a grade as you can because that's not only... uh, it's not only impossible to go up too high a grade uh, in Hill, but it's more expensive because you're using more fuel. But the Union Pacific had incentives to build quickly to get subsidies. And so they didn't build a good route. James J. Hill, when he was going West, he knew he had to get the flattest route possible through the Rocky Mountains. He went back to the journals of Lewis and Clark back. uh, They were the first settlers, American settlers to go through the Rocky Mountains. And he wondered, how did they do it? And he found that they had an area they called the Marias Pass uh, that was out in the Western part of the Montana, Idaho area. And he thought, how do we get through this Marias Pass? And he, he then had hired uh, Indian guides. He he also had other people working for him that tried to find this route, and they did find it. And it was a flat route. And he simply had his railroad go through. He bought the rights to go through the Mariah's Pass, and went through a relatively flat route. So he had incredible advantages over the subsidized railroads because. He, Hill's railroad was well built. It was built on a flat grade. He was dealing with exports and customers right from the start, whereas the Union Pacific simply built out west. They hoped that customers would come. They had subsidies, a curved route, not a good route through the Rocky Mountains, and their costs of operation were much more than James J. Hill's costs with his Great Northern Railroad, which had no subsidies. So that Hill naturally charged less and made more, whereas the Union Pacific could not do well because of the poor route that they built because of the federal subsidies.
1: In your opinion, do you think that the United States would have been better off economically if there never had been any subsidies at all and they had just relied on the entrepreneurs to figure these things out the way James Hill did?
2: Absolutely, I believe that it's an important point because most historians and and even many economists do not believe that, and so you continue to have subsidies be a model for developing an industry. But absolutely, I believe it. Now, I have to say one thing in the in the case of the transcontinental railroads, if Hill had been allowed to operate without having the Union Pacific around. He was slower to build his railroad. It it took him 10 to 15 years to build the Great Northern. It took the Union Pacific only about three or four years. If you see my point, when you have federal money and you're just building as quickly as possible to, to, to get mileage and get subsidies, you can do it quickly. You have a railroad, but the railroad was not good for long term use, it was inefficient. It was expensive to operate. It did not have a good grade through the mountains. It did not have a straight route from Omaha to California. It was curved. It had inherent problems that made it difficult for anybody to take over and run profitably. Hill's railroad was good right from the start. So what I'm saying is, if you eliminate the federal subsidies, Hill, or someone like Hill would have built a railroad. It would have been along Hill's lines. It would have been an efficient railroad. It would have had good, uh, a good level grade east to west. It would have been a straight route, as straight as you could get it from east to west. And it would have been profitable to customers. And we wouldn't have had the corruption that comes in with the subsidies to the union pacific and by the way as the union pacific was being exposed for their bad subsidies they bought off congressmen with free stock in their in in a nas- in a part of their railroad the credit mobile Gay, which was a supply uh, a group that supplied coal and steel to the railroads they would give stock in that organization to congressmen and then receive uh, positive votes from congress to continue giving subsidies to the union pacific so i'm saying we not only had a bad railroad we had political corruption we did not have that with james j hill so we would have not only as long as you accept that we'd had a longer time to do it everything else would have been better the quality of the rails would have been better The absence of political corruption, or at least minimally political corruption, would have been better for the country. And uh, customers would have gotten a good product. Taxpayers would have saved not having to fund a disastrously subsidized
1: railroad. Um, This sounds uh, eerily familiar, because just a few years ago, the the U.S. government was trying to um, subsidize a company called Solyndra, to manufacture um, solar cells to jumpstart the um, solar industry because as you know, uh, we're trying to find ways of getting around um, burning fossil fuels and this was considered a really good idea, but then the company ended up going bankrupt even with the the government subsidies. Do you see any um, um, similarities or resemblance between the subsidies for Fulton and steam and for the transcontinental railroads and and all of their failures and the failure of Solyndra?
2: There is a similarity. There's also some interesting differences, Uh, but they're not differences in result. They're both examples of subsidies that failed. In the case of Fulton, in the case of the transcontinentals, they were subsidies to to, uh, transport people and products across either the ocean or across the land. And both of the subsidies carried with them incentives for the political entrepreneurs to be inefficient. Now, Solyndra is an interesting example because that's much more of a subsidy that never had a chance right from the start. At least I can understand how somebody could say, hey, wait a minute, in in the case of the railroads, we have a vast Western part of the United States that is unsettled and we don't know much about it. And maybe uh, an entrepreneur is going to be slow to get into a business of building out to California. So, and I can understand that. At least you can sit there and think, yeah, and so you subsidize a railroad and that'll get the job done. Of course, we didn't realize that we would create more problems by doing that. But nonetheless, I can at least see where President Lincoln and others thought this would be a good idea. In the case of Solyndra with the solar cells, that, that had politics written on it from the get-go because the leaders of Solyndra were contributors and friends of President Obama and they made contributions to his campaign. And then he receives a federal subsidy. President Obama goes to uh, the California area where Solyndra was making their sales and says, isn't this a ex- good example of job creation? Well, it's an example of using taxpayer money to give to a company which ultimately failed and there was no chance to succeed because the costs of making their solar cells were, were, were greater than uh, uh, what they were selling selling them for. So the, it was just a matter of time. The The only way that company ever could have existed was by a permanent large federal subsidy. And so that it's a good example of, a failed subsidy in modern times and interesting to compare it with the earlier subsidies. But in the case of Solyndra, if anything, I think that's worse because that was really a political deal right from the start, whereas at least in the case of the Union Pacific, there were hopes that it might work out.
1: Interesting. Um, Let me shift um, away from um, railroads and steamships for a minute and bring up the most famous of the quote unquote robber barons. uh, John D Rockefeller in the oil business. I I don't think you can graduate from um, high school without knowing um, that man's name and he's somewhat demonized and I always grew up thinking that um, Rockefeller must have gotten rich by jacking up the price of oil. Could you tell us a little bit about um, how he got started and what he accomplished?
2: Mike, I think that Rockefeller is the greatest entrepreneur of the Gilded Age, and the best example of a market entrepreneur. And he he took no federal subsidies, and he developed the oil industry, and sold oil cheaply. I mean, oil was uh, so. And, and by the way, it was used in the in the Gilded Age. Uh, late 1800s was used for lighting. We think of oil today either in the form of making gasoline or perhaps as an energy source. But really during the late 1800s, it was mainly used to, for lamps, to light lamps, to light homes, because we didn't have electricity. That was another invention, by the way, of the Gilded Age. Uh, I would say the inventions of the Gilded Age are greater than perhaps any 40-year period in the United States history, because electricity is part of that, uh, uh, the discovery. In the case of Edison Wright, the phonograph, the movie, you've also got typewriters, adding machines, the first computer, telephones, the automobile. If you go into 1903, we also could count the airplane. So the Gilded Age is loaded with creative inventions, perhaps the best of any country at any time in any period of history, the United States and the Gilded Age. But Rockefeller, with his oil, was actually more successful than all of the inventors of those other products because he was able to – the idea here being that everybody wants to have light for their home. And so he could we, – we have to think of the United States in the, in the mid-1800s. You didn't really have a nightlife unless you had whale oil or candles of some kind but with a, an oil lamp, you could light your home. It opened up avenues for a nightlife. I mean, if anything, you could go to night school, you could do work at night. And so lamps, uh, kerosene lamps were popular. Rockefeller, by selling his oil for kerosene, was in effect reaching almost every American in the country. His his market was all of America. And then he had foreign markets for all of the world. Nobody in the world could produce kerosene as cheaply as Rockefeller. So Rockefeller had the biggest business of a product that everybody practically in the world wanted. And therefore he became the richest man in world history. He became the first billionaire in American history by the low cost of kerosene that he sold to customers he could make he could process and refine kerosene at 6 cents a gallon and he would sell it at maybe close to 8 cents a gallon and he would use the 2 cents for research and development for salaries incentive bonuses and so on
1: so you're telling me that even though our te- our history textbooks teach us that he was this great monopolist he was actually lowering the price of kerosene
2: that yes makes sense he was lowering it. He would, you know, kerosene would go for as much as it, it during the Civil War. And remember, the oil industry is new; it developed in the 1850s. But uh, at the time of the Civil War, you would sometimes get costs of kerosene of a dollar a gallon. And uh, Rockefeller was was uh, continually cutting costs. Nobody in the world could produce and sell it at about eight cents a gallon he was the only only person in the world. Now you might think he'd have a monopoly, but there were other customers or there were other producers who were able to to make their product in different regions of the country and so they had small markets. They they also had a market share. There 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 were maybe uh, 50 to 75 other oil producers uh, throughout the late 1800s. But Rockefeller set the standard. He had the largest market share in the United States. 85, sometimes 90% of all refined oil was his company, Standard Oil. He had a world market share of about 60%. Can you imagine this, Mike? Somebody today, one company having a world market share in oil of 60%. That was Rockefeller and the triumph of American industry followed his great accomplishments.
1: But you're claiming and that, that um, these accomplishments were not generated by ripping off his customers, but in fact, by lowering the price of kerosene so much that he built a huge empire. Is that about right, yeah. summing up?
2: That sums it up. And I would say this, if he were ripping customers off, why not go to one of his competitors, right? In other words, there were other people producing oil and uh, other customers had plenty of chance to try to produce cheaply, but Rockefeller was the cheapest. Now you might say, well, wait a minute, if he's getting all this market, then why doesn't he just go in there and raise his prices? And Rockefeller was asked that question often and he had a response for it. He said, I don't want to raise my prices and try to gouge profits that way because I would be losing money. And they'd say, what do you mean? He'd say, because once I started raising prices, I'd lose market share. He said, there are a lot of people ready to produce oil at nine cents a gallon uh, and sell it. I'm selling it at eight. If, If I move up to nine or 10 cents a gallon, those other producers will come in. They will make more oil. They will get economies of scale. And they will then become permanently permanent competitors. And Rockefeller said, I'm not going to do that. And some people said, well, why don't you just cut the price and knock them all out? And he said, that's worse. Because then I already have 80% of the American market. If I were to lower prices, I would be giving up that profit that I do make off the 80% that I already sell to in order to capture the other 20%. He said, so it's foolish for me to do predatory price cutting. It's foolish of me to do a price hike. The best thing I can do is produce oil and produce it competitively. And uh, he had a quotation, which I will read, which he wrote to. In 1885, Rockefeller wrote one of his partners this statement. Let the good work go on we must ever remember we are refining oil for the poor man and he must have it cheap and good. That was his goal.
1: This sounds an awful lot like um, what we see today. Let me just mention a a couple of entrepreneurs uh, that are uh, not from the Gilded Age, but from our age today, such as Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple Computer Michael Dell at Dell Computer, Larry Ellison at Oracle, um, Sam Walton at Walmart. Uh, Should these men all be considered robber barons, or how should they be looked at, in your opinion? It's harder to be a pure uh, market
2: entrepreneur today because of the increased role of the federal government. The federal government had a smaller role back in the 1800s, and so it was unusual for companies to get subsidies. Today that part of the market is, is permeated more by government. But I would still, having said that, Mike, I want to classify those you mentioned as market entrepreneurs. I, I especially Let me focus on Michael, uh, on Steve Jobs for a minute. Um, here's a guy who is like Henry Ford. And Henry Ford was the second billionaire in US history after Rockefeller. Ford gave people something they wanted before they knew they wanted it. People in the late 1890s, when Ford got his cars going, didn't want a car. If you'd asked people, how do you want transportation to improve? They would have said, I want faster horses and better carriages with better shock absorbers. Uh, that's what people would say and better roads maybe. But Ford saw beyond that. And this is the beauty of a country that has market entrepreneurs in a free society. You had a guy, and he wasn't wealthy. He, he, he was an orphan by the age of about 12 or 13. He, he grew up w- without, w- without much, but he had ideas and he had ability. And he produced this automobile, but he wanted to put a car in every garage and he believed that would supersede carriages. Steve Jobs, it was the same way. I did not know. I, I, I have an iPhone. I didn't know until about five years or eight years ago that I even wanted one. Uh, it wasn't until he produced it that I realized I want this. I didn't have a concept of having a phone and music and an email and all of this that I could do on one, and, uh, do on one device. It was Jobs' imagination that did that. And that's part of the beauty of having a free society, having market entrepreneurs into the scene who can experiment and be creative. In a government run society, one that's dominated by the, by, by the state, you never, never see those kinds of inventions.
1: Now, I started off that um, discussion here right at the end, talking about um, modern entrepreneurs And I deliberately tossed in names like Steve Jobs, because most most people, at least the young people that I teach, admire what Apple has accomplished. So there's not much controversy dealing with Apple, but um, Walmart seems to generate a great deal of anger and resentment in a way that um, Apple does not. Um, What's your opinion of Sam Walton and what he's accomplished at Walmart?
2: Yes, I, I'm very positive towards Sam Walton. I think he cl- he qualifies as a as a strong market entrepreneur. He was all, the wealthiest man in the United States during the 1980s, and he uh, was absolutely genius in the way of merchandising and and marketing, eliminating the middleman, and producing economies of scale. All of many of these things we've we've talked about already. Walton had the vision of having these big stores and buying in bulk, again, the economies of scale, and thereby giving customers a chance to stock their household with all sorts of goods and services as well at a cheap rate. And uh, there were time periods where where we estimated that he would save the average family maybe $1,000 a year, maybe 600, maybe $1,000 because of the low cost. In other words, if you had to buy what people were buying at Walmart, at the higher prices that were available, you would pay about 600, maybe even a thousand dollars more per year. The average family this is, and by the way, this is in the 1980s when a thousand dollars meant a lot more. And so he was, he was uh, enormously beneficial in that respect to American customers. It, the, the same principle. What can I, how can I add value to customers' lives? And Walton figured out a way to do that. And so it's, it's, a little bit puzzling sometimes to see the criticism, although some of the same critics of Walton are the same ones who criticized Rockefeller. I mean, the same types of critics, I should say. Both of them are people, people who are competing with him, complain at it. Uh, People who are producing products and selling products at higher costs complain that they're going to go out of business. And in the American system, what you need to do if you can't be, competitive is try your hand at something else the same problem was here with rockefeller his biggest critic was a woman named ida Tarbell, who wrote the history of standard oil and mainly was just saying oh what an awful man he was but when you talked with her she said my husband my my father was an oil driller and produced oil in pennsylvania and he couldn't compete with rockefeller and went out of business and that ruined my childhood And so, really, it's a resentment on the part of people who are not as good at their jobs. And we saw this a little, we see this a little bit with Walton too, in that those people who are producing products less competitively are jealous. And understandably, they don't want to have Walmart in there, they want to be able to sell at higher prices.
1: The takeaway I get from your book, which again, uh, just to reiterate to those who are listening, uh was really fascinating because it goes through a bunch of the history that we think we know. And when you start digging into it, you realize uh, how much of what we understand uh, is very uh, slanted in a way that denigrates the accomplishments of, of these uh, business-oriented entrepreneurs. And I was wondering, do you have a, theory as to why the historical profession um, seems to have gotten this particular issue so wrong? To some extent,
2: I think historians simply follow one another from in, from one generation to another, and they don't think outside the box. But that, of course, then raises the question, Mike, how do they get off base in the first place? And I think most historians do not respect entrepreneurs properly. I'm talking about the market entrepreneurs. Uh, Let's look at it this way. Henry Ford never went to college. He didn't have a college education, neither did Vanderbilt, neither did Hill. Uh, So what you have, and Rockefeller, although he went to a, a little business training for a while, also did not have a college education all of these people also didn't start with much. They weren't writers. They didn't defend themselves with these massive autobiographies. Rockefeller did write an autobiography, but it's a small one. And Vanderbilt, they they didn't write much. So so their case is not actively out there. They, they They weren't interested in writing about what they did. They were interested in doing it. Professors, it's hard sometimes for the historians and the professors to sit there and say, you know what, I'm not making as much as they did by a long shot, and that's the way it should be because they're adding value by the sale of their products to millions of Americans, and I may or may not be adding value to the 30 students who are in my classroom who are stuck in there for a required course, whether they want to be or not. And so the... Professor imagines that his value is really greater, that he's underappreciated. In other words, how can somebody selling underwear be paid more than I'm being paid for. There's something unethical about that. And so I think historians and academics are turned against entrepreneurs. They don't understand them. They don't understand the risks. They don't understand the incentives. They don't understand markets very well. One of the reasons I teach economic history is that's the first thing, Mike, that I thought, I realized when I began studying history at great length is I thought historians don't understand economics very well. And that explains why I think they're off base so often. I think historians need to know more about economics or as Paul Hain called it, the economic way of thinking. They need to think about markets and incentives. By the way, I think economists would benefit from studying history. Economists have sometimes the problem of they have models, but they don't have reality to root their models. And so I think uh, history and economic history is an excellent field because there you get real live events, things that actually happened that had consequences. And you can apply a lot of economic ideas to studying history. And I think that's very helpful to do
1: that. Well, I couldn't agree more with you. After reading your book, um, I'm one of those model people as well. When I went went to grad school, economics is all math and all models. And it gives you some really interesting results uh, in the theoretical sense. But seeing how it actually plays out in real time uh, in your book is uh, really fascinating. And uh, so uh, thank you so much for um, um, taking time out of your uh, busy schedule to come and um, speak with us. And um, I hope to interview you on another book that you've written um, sometime in the near future. Mike, it's always good talking with you. You're a good thinker and I benefit
2: from our interaction. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to the Bagwell Center podcast. For more content like this, please be sure to subscribe. And for more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit us online at kohls.kennesaw.edu econop.